Well, Father, thank you for this incredible idea of yours to send your son to become a human being born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life, to perform miracles, cast out demons, and then die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead and ascend to heaven. What a great plan. Now you've poured out your spirit upon your people and you're calling us to share this good news to everyone. We want to do that. But we need faith. We ask that you'd increase our faith. We ask that you would teach us today about faith. And uh, and we appreciate that very much in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Hebrews. You know, I can never get this thing to work. There. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, page 656 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And we've been spending a a lot of time on chapter 11 because chapter 11 is all about faith. It gives several different examples of faith. And so we're seeing what we can learn about faith through all of these examples. And today we get to look at Sarah and Abraham. I want to read a story. By the way, most of you know I'm also a professor at the University of Northwestern in St. Paul. And one of the assignments I gave them was to write a sermon. So they had to write a sermon. And one of the sermons, I just want to share this story from one of my students. It's, it's incredible. This happened last year. He says, one story of faith and healing that comes to mind to me happened to me last year. I had an intramural football game here at Northwestern, and one of my teammates was on crutches with a badly sprained foot. He was not able to play, so he came and watched. One guy came up to me, up to him, and asked if he could pray for his foot. The guy said that he had a dream the other night that he saw a guy in a yellow shirt on crutches, and that is exactly what my teammate was wearing. Anyways, the guy sat down, my teammate, and prayed for his foot. The look on his face was amazement. He was like, wow, my foot was on fire, and it was 100% healed, and he was actually able to play football that day. It was truly amazing and was the first time I witnessed healing. Now, isn't that cool? You know, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's neat. Uh, um, and, you know, this is one of my students. I've had him for, you know, a couple different classes, and and I think I said this morning, he's a, he's a pretty good student. People laughed at that. I don't know. I meant that as a compliment. But <laughs> okay, not a... Maybe, well, anyway, okay. But, but I know him, and this, this, this happened to him. And what's really funny is I was talking to Tanner on, on the phone, and he shared with me a story of how he got his foot He prayed for. He had done something to it and prayed for it, and it was instantly healed and was able to, you know walk on it and everything fine you know so I thought that was cool and and he didn't know about this story here <laughs> and uh, then I also thought about uh, something that happened to us in um, Colorado in our church there we were gathered uh, it wasn't church service so I'm not sure why we were there but it was in the in the church building and we were gathered there for something and we were we were praying and and Zach who's a the brother of one of the elders of the church he was there and he was on crutches and so we prayed for him, and all of a sudden he says he felt something, and he starts jumping up and dancing on it, and, and he was scheduled to go to the doctor the next day and never had to because it was completely healed. 
Um, as I was sharing this, uh, the first service, then Jim Rao, as you all know, uh, he stands up in the service and he says, Larry, I just got to share. And this had happened to him. He had shared with us. I remember when it happened. But he had had um, uh, bone spurs uh, in his foot for months. And it was just, you know, terrible. But then something happened right then in the church service where it was instantly healed, gone, never had a problem with them since. Okay, so that's uh, so he reminded me. It's a bunch of foot stuff, right? <laughs> right, you know, I you know. But the point is, is that God does heal. Would you like to see or experience something like that in your own life? You know, we read in the Bible these stories, and it, God is all powerful. He can do this kind of thing. Our God is awesome. He's all the all powerful Creator of the universe. He heals the sick, he sets the captives free, and he saves the lost. And faith is a factor in all of this. Now, in our passage, we're going to see that faith brings miracles. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. And so we see here the miracle of Sarah being able to have children. And... Uh, and, and this was a miracle, and we want to look at it and see, since this is in the place of the great hall of fame of faith people, what can we learn from Sarah and Abraham's faith? First, let's look at Sarah. Okay, Sarah believed that God was faithful. That's how verse 11 ended. See there, she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Let's go ahead and look at it, because as you're remembering this story, some of you might be thinking, but I thought she had some doubts. Well, she did. Look at Genesis chapter 18, okay, verse 9. This is the incidence. It's the first book in your Bible. Genesis 18. We'll start with verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. So she had a time of doubt there, didn't she? Now, but we see in our passage in, in Hebrews 11 that she did believe. What we can look, detect from this is you don't have to have perfect faith. 
before something can happen to you. See, sometimes people make it out to be you've got to have this absolute perfect faith without any doubts, otherwise nothing's going to happen to you. That's not what we see in the Bible. She didn't have the perfect faith, but apparently she had enough faith because she did end up having Isaac, remember? Okay, so we see that. Um, You just have to have a little mustard seed of faith is what Jesus said, right? Here's what Sarah believed. First of all, she believed that God keeps his promises. Our passage says she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. When God promises something, he does keep his promises. In fact, let's look now at the promise. We see this in Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. Genesis 17 God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations, kings of people. Peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. So we see even Abraham didn't have the perfect faith. He's laughing. He's wondering how's this going to happen here. But here we see the promise. And when God promises, he keeps his promise. And Sarah believed that God keeps his promises. Now, he doesn't always promise to do a miracle, though. And that's the part where we want to make sure we don't err on on the other side. And that is, he doesn't always promise to do miracles. Um, So you don't get to turn God into a giant vending machine. You come up with enough faith, you pull the right triggers, and God has to give you whatever you asked. You don't see that in the Bible. God is God. And so he doesn't always promise miracles, but he does promise this that no matter what you're going through, when you seek him, he will give you the peace that you need. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is a wonderful promise that we see uh, that, and as I said, no matter what your circumstances, here we can know that God, when we seek him, he will give us the peace we need to get through whatever it is that we're going through. Look at Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. I like that word, anything. It's good. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So you pray, you seek the Lord, whatever it is, whatever need you have, you seek Him. And sometimes He performs a miracle, sometimes He comes through in that way, but other times He gives you the strength to get through whatever it is that you have to get through. But He does promise this every time, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He'll give you the peace. 
And since that's a fruit of the Spirit, he also gives us joy. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. This is also in the context of going through a difficulty in life. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 begins, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's at the return of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls." The salvation of our souls, that is the goal of our faith. And though we go through trials and tribulations, God uses them for our good and his glory. But within it, he promises us this inexpressible and glorious joy. And so we see that God will come through somehow, some way. Uh, But we don't get to tell him how. Sometimes it's through miracles. In fact, uh, that is... Uh, God, Sarah believed God keeps his promises, and Sarah believed that God performs miracles. He promised to her he would do a miracle. She was 90 years old. Most 90-year-olds can't have kids. And, but he, she believed that God performs miracles. Now, I want to show you what kind of faith, because this really fits Sarah's faith. Look at Matthew 9, verse 27 through 30. Once again, sometimes people present this as if it's something like you have to come up with this absolute certainty, otherwise forget it, you're not going to get anything, which kind of sounds like a, I don't know, a mean God to me. But he doesn't expect that. Look what he says here in Matthew 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, "'Have mercy on us, son of David.'" When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? Now, notice the question. It's very important. He doesn't ask, Do you believe that I'm going to do this? He simply asks, Do you believe that I can do this? NIV says, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Simply believing that God can do it. Now look at the response. They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. They simply believed that he was able to, and that was enough faith. And because that was God's will, he did it, and they were healed. And so God performs miracles sometimes. Uh, When I was reading this story of Sarah, it reminded me of an incident that that we experienced and... uh, uh, this was down in Florida, planted a church in Orlando. And this lady from Boston called up and wanted to visit our church, but she wasn't going to be there on Sunday. So uh, I, I invited her to our life group. So she came to our life group, and we were there. It was going to be a big circle, and, and we were praying. And then the Lord had given me a vision. And I saw a vision of a giant dinosaur egg. And I just shared it with her. You know, I said, you know, this is 
what I saw. I really don't know what it means. It could have been the pizza I ate the night before. I don't know. Okay, but this is what I saw. Okay, well then, Nancy Losey, uh the first service, when I said her name, I said Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi was not there. Okay, Nancy Losey was there, and she said, I think it means she's going to have a baby, okay? And I thought, where did that come from, Nancy? You know, and I, my faith really wasn't all that big on the, at this point on this particular instance. And, and then she starts crying. And she says, well, we're, we're not able to have a child. We've been trying, and we can't have kids. But then I thought, oh, Nancy, look what you've done. But the, that's, once again, my unbelief, Right? Well, we prayed for her. Within a month or two, she called from Boston and said, we're pregnant, we're going to have a baby. And we saw that miracle take place. Now, God doesn't do that all the time, okay? But he does these kinds of things uh, when he, in his plan, the one thing we know is that God is faithful. And that is what Sarah believed. She, it says that she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. God is faithful. He will never let us down. That doesn't mean we always get what we want. Sometimes he performs miracles, but most of the time he helps us through the difficulty, strengthening us and giving us wisdom. The Example that I thought of when I was preparing this was Johnny Erickson Tata. If you've ever heard of her and her story. Johnny Erickson Tata, I think she was like 19 or so. She experienced that she was diving. She had a diving accident. She was paralyzed from the neck down. And she's actually 69 now. This was so she's still ministering. But what happened was at first she had her, you know, going through depression and all that, like you could imagine. Well, then she, you know, the Lord came to her, and she really began to develop that relationship with the Lord, and she learned how to paint. Uh, she actually learned how to paint with her mouth, and she became very good at it. And, and then from there, with the relationship with the Lord, she began to reach out to others who had experienced things like this, uh, you know, uh, paraplegics and so forth, and, and ministered to them and shared Christ with them, and, and her ministry grew and grew, and uh, then she became a speaker, international speaker. I've heard her twice. She is absolutely phenomenal. Okay. God never healed her, but he worked through her and gave purpose in her life, even in the midst of her tragedy. But purpose only comes through surrender to his plan. God calls us to surrender to his plan. I want to read a story from Joseph Stoll's book, Following Christ. And this is, uh, shows why a purposeless life is tragic. It says, Ted DeMoss, former chairman of the Christian Businessmen's Committee, tells of a friend, John Herman, who had two earned PhDs and whose lifelong ambition had been to meet the brilliant criminal lawyer Clarence Darrow, who had become famous in the Scopes trial. 
Late in Herman's life, it was arranged for the two men to meet. Sitting in the attorney's living room, Herman asked Darrow, now that you've come this far in life and you're not doing much lecturing or teaching or writing anymore, how would you sum up your life? Without hesitation, Darrow walked over to a coffee table and picked up a Bible. This took the guest by surprise since Darrow was an atheist who had spent much of his life publicly ridiculing Scripture. This verse in the Bible describes my life. Darrow turned to the fifth chapter of Luke, the fifth verse. He changed the we to I. I have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. He closed the Bible, put it back on the coffee table, and looked Herman straight in the face. I have lived a life without purpose, without meaning, without direction. I don't know where I came from, and I don't know what I'm doing here. And worst of all, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I punch out of here. That's a purposeless life. Now, tragically, even Christians can fall into that trap. He goes on to say, he says, ironically, most of us who call ourselves Christians have not felt the need to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Like those outside the faith, we too search for meaning and happiness in this flat, plastic, material world. We cling tenaciously to strategic points of independence. We soothe our conscience by following him selectively when it seems convenient and self-gratifying. Then we wonder why Christianity seems sterile, ritualistic, burdensome, and sometimes boring. We too feel deep longings for meaning and purpose. We likewise feel twinges of loneliness at the core of our being while the whole time we have in our own grasp the capacity to satisfy our souls and discover how life was meant to be. Like misers who go hungry because they refuse to buy food, we fear that what will happen if we pursue Christ without reservation as the uncompromised center of our existence. But that's where you find purpose. That's where you find excitement, is when you surrender to Jesus as Lord totally and completely. And that's what he calls us all to. Sarah believed this. She believed God keeps his promises. She believed God performs miracles. And she believed that God is faithful and will use her in her own life to bring about this great good that he ends up doing here. So let's look at Abraham now. Verse 12, we see Abraham believed God was faithful. Go back to Hebrews 11, verse 12. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. So he's going to have offspring incredible numbers of offspring. By the way, this is a use of hyperbole. He is exaggerating, okay? There are not trillions of Israelites, okay? The Bible does use that kind of language, but he is saying there's going to be a lot of them, okay? And God has a purpose for them. In fact, um, Abraham believed God was faithful in this promise. By the way, uh, you think, you know, Isaac was the the, the, the fulfillment of this, right? And, you, and that was a miracle, but I can think of an even greater birth miracle. Can you? 
we celebrate it at Christmas, right? Born of the Virgin Mary, top that, okay? All right, well, at any rate, Abraham believed God was faithful. I want to go back and look at this, look at Genesis 15, because it all, what we see here, the first miracle I want to mention is Abraham experienced the miracle of justification. Uh, Look at Genesis chapter 15. So now we've looked at Genesis 18, then we went to 17. Now we're going down to Genesis chapter 15, and we see God's promise here. 15 verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. That's where this passage comes from. But now look at verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is perhaps one of the most important verses in the Bible. We see the gospel being displayed here. That Abram, who was not a perfect man, just like, none, just like all the rest of us, he was not perfect, but how can an imperfect human being, a sinner, come into the very presence of God? And it says here, Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Paul explains this. So turn now to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In Romans, we see Paul who discovered this. Paul, before he was saved, he believed in salvation by works, that if you're good enough, that that's how you could get in. And here we see that he was transformed and changed in his beliefs. And look what he says here. From Abraham, it says, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. There he's quoting our passage in Genesis 15. Now to the one, and here's his explanation. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. You see, you're not saved by your good works. Your good works will not. If you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you in my heaven? And if your answer is, I'm a pretty good person, that isn't going to work because that's trying to get there by your good works. He says here that our faith in Christ, believing that he died on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins, our faith in Christ, God counts that as the full righteousness you need to get in. That's good news. 
Okay, And it's so salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is the greatest miracle. So Abraham experienced the miracle of justification. And then we see that the nation of Israel was the result of Abraham's faith. The way he describes this, that the numerous offspring, as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you discover that through Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And how though they spent time in Egypt as slaves, Moses led them out, and then they became the nation of Israel. And that God had a plan for those people to use them. Uh, In fact, uh, it is an incredible miracle in and of itself that this group of people, the Israelites, are still around and that they're back in their homeland. I want to read something from my book, The Uniqueness of the Bible. I start out the book and I describe the nation of Israel. Look at the history of Israel. The nation of Israel began from a wandering nomad named Abram who never owned a single parcel of ground except his own burial plot. The Israelites grew in numbers as slaves in Egypt, somehow not intermixing with the other races of that land. After living in Egypt for 400 years, they left Egypt and actually conquered the nations living in Palestine, even though they were not trained in warfare. Half the nation was destroyed and exiled during the rule of the world empire of Assyria, 722 B.C. The other half was destroyed and exiled during the Babylonian regime, 586 B.C. The Jews returned under the Persian administration, somehow not losing their distinctiveness during the forced domination and exile. The Greeks sought to annihilate the Jews' identity by forced integration. Anyone who stood in the Greeks' way was killed. After the Greeks, the Romans subjugated the Jews and eventually destroyed the temple and banned all Jews from their homeland, 70 A.D. and following. For the next 1,900 years, the Jewish people roamed the earth as nomads under almost constant persecution. The Muslims would kill and disperse their groups. The so-called Christians would force them to recant their beliefs or kill them. Their money was constantly being confiscated. All this led up to the atrocity of Hitler, who exterminated six million Jews, one-third of the entire Jewish population in the world at that time. Anti-Semitic prejudice still runs rampant today. Much of the Middle Eastern world wants to see the total annihilation of the Jews. The Six-Day War was an incredible victory for Israel against the entire Arab world, even though all the odds were against Israel. How can we account for Israel's existence unless there is a God of providence? How can we account for the widespread hatred toward Israel throughout history unless there is a supernatural evil controlling the Jews' opposition? The survival of Israel and the fact that the Jews are back in their homeland after 1,900 years should at least cause us to consider the claims of the Bible. And God isn't finished with them yet. That's the amazing thing. We still see the hatred, even just this week in the news. We saw how the Hamas, it's a terrorist organization, are shooting missiles, bombs over into Israel from from Gaza and The United Nations, our country, 
sought to get the United Nations to at least condemn that act of atrocity. And the United Nations cowered and refused to condemn it because there is an international hatred for these people. Are they really that bad? Or is there a demonic realm over all of this? And is there a supernatural God who has chosen them and isn't finished with them yet? (laughs) We see in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, a promise. I want to look at that. Zechariah 12, verse 10, just towards the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah... Chapter 12, verse 10, he says, and this is the context is the end of time. It says, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David in the residence of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps bitterly, who weeps for a firstborn. So at the, in the end of time, the, the nation of Israel, the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, they're going to look on God whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him. And this is a true repentant mourning. We know that from chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. They get saved in the end. That's awesome. God is not finished with them. He called them and he called to use them to reach out to the whole world and he's not finished with them yet. That's what we see. Ezekiel 37 actually gives the picture that it comes in two stages. He speaks of this prophecy where they're gonna, the bones come to life. It's the, you know, the dry bones prophecy. The bones come to life and I think that figures Israel becomes a nation again. But then it says, secondly, God breathes into them his spirit and they come alive. I think that's what we're reading in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. They come to Christ in the end. So we see here, the nation of Israel was the result of Abraham's faith. And all nations were blessed through Abraham. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 now. So we went from 18 to 17 to 15, now to 12. The original calling of Abraham in Genesis. And here is the original promise when he calls Abraham. He says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's going to curse anyone who treats them with contempt, so I think it's probably a wise idea to be on their side. But all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Genesis 12, we, uh, God doesn't show favoritism. Acts 10.34 brings that out. He wants everyone to come to him. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 brings that out. And he's using calling the nation of Israel in order to reach the world for Christ. Christ came through them. The word came through them. And in the end, we'll see this great miracle take place again that will draw many to him. It's because God wants to reach everyone. 
but we have to make a decision. I want to read another tragic story in Stoll's book on following Christ. Rick, surrounded by 64,000 other men, sat in the Dome Stadium in Minneapolis and listened as the speaker spoke pointedly about personal purity. Were some of you there? Remember that? First service was several people. This gathering in Minneapolis for uh, promise keepers. At the close of the message, thousands of the men stood to commit and recommit themselves to lives of integrity and moral purity. Rick knew that this kind of commitment would mean that not going over to Vicky's apartment on week- weekends. It would mean denying a part of his life that he had come to both enjoy and count on. As he watched other men stand, he remembered how convincing his university professor had been in claiming that there are no moral absolutes. When another Christian in the class disagreed, the professor systematically dismantled the student's point of view. There was no doubt that few in the class held any sympathy for those who believe that some things are always right and some always wrong. Now sitting in that stadium and troubled in mind, Rick wondered why he should give up his relationship with Vicky. Maybe these guys are just being manipulated into a religious experience by the power of the moment and the compelling presentation of the speaker. Rick never stood. Rick didn't follow. How about you? Have you decided to follow Jesus? When I was 21, I knew Christianity was true. I also knew that in order to surrender to Jesus, I had to walk away from a lot. I lost my girlfriend. None of my friends understood. But I knew that if I didn't surrender to Jesus, I would be committing intellectual and spiritual suicide. I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that he died on the cross and rose again bodily three days later, I knew that I had to make a decision. And I have never looked back. Over the past 36 years, I have seen several miracles. I have seen hundreds of people come to Christ. I've seen marriages transformed, addicts set free, and purposeless people find real meaning in life. It has been worth it. And he's calling us. Surrender to him. And what we see in that passage, faith brings miracles. God has a plan for you. Will you follow him? And we get to have a couple testimonies of faith where they have been justified simply by their faith in Jesus Christ and are now going to outwardly express that in baptism. So let me invite the two of you to come up. I need somebody to take this lid off. 